welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 64 of the podcast. Today, we're talking about the Stargate Universe episode, Lost. The description on GateWorld reads, A group from Destiny is left behind on a planet when the ship enters FTL and must find a Stargate route back to the ship before it leaves the galaxy. This episode was written by Martin Garrow, it was directed by Ron Schmidt, and it first aired on the 30th of April 2010. I love that Riley is documenting stuff with Aquino, because he thinks that Eli would want somebody to do that in his absence. And I'd say he's right. Of course, Rush makes a good point that as one of those who are absent, he'd probably want everyone's focus on trying to rescue him. Despite having a little success in the chair last episode, Rush still doesn't know how to tell the ship to turn around and go back to the planet where the away team are stranded. Riley explains to the Kino, and to those viewers to whom this hasn't been made clear yet, that the primitive stargates in this galaxy and on the Destiny are very short range. When the ship drops out of FDL, it's only in range of a handful of them. Next time they drop out, they may be too far away from this world to dial it, which sucks for the people there. And that's when the power starts going out. Just little things, one at a time. It starts with the Kino. And the episode lets us sit in that for a moment, thinking that there's something wrong with the Kino. But then the monitor goes out. I really like this. The slow escalation evokes an ominous feeling in the viewer. Lieutenant James is chatting with TJ, who has been asked to keep an eye on her. The first line we hear in the conversation is, I'm not one to just sleep with anyone. It's pretty clear she's talking about her experience with Scott in the first episode. This is confirmation that the experience meant a whole lot more to her than it did to him. There'd probably been some build-up. It wasn't just a random encounter in the broom closet, although it did in fact take place in the broom closet. Sadly, Scott is the type of person to just sleep with anyone. At least he was before he met Chloe. So my previous criticisms of his approach to such things notwithstanding, he has at least allowed Chloe to make him a better person. And I guess that's one aspect of a healthy and positive relationship. It makes you a better person. But of course, we should never put that burden on another person. When it happens naturally, it's a good thing. But ultimately, the responsibility for being a good person rests on us, not our partners. The power thing is weird, because the ship's reserves are still quite high, but the ship has gone into power-saving mode. Rush thinks that he can work around it, but I love what Brody says. Maybe we shouldn't work around it. Maybe the ship has done this for a reason. And that's a very, very good point. Riley points out that computers don't last forever. And remember, these computers are millions of years old, so it might be a malfunction. Either could be true, but it would be wise to understand which it is before taking any action, especially given that life support seems unaffected for now. The stranded away team have enough water for two days, but finding more should be possible. They're on a planet covered in trees. If they can just escape from the underground tunnels, they should be able to find drinkable water. Eli has an idea. 
They know Destiny is following a path in one direction, following the seed ships, so they can roughly approximate where it'll be next. He also says that people don't understand how big a galaxy is, and that's so true. Often people in fiction talk about galaxies as if they're solar systems, although sadly I think sometimes even writers get those two confused. Anyway, the theory is that when Destiny next drops out, it'll be in range of a different circle of gates. But what if there are gates within the previous circle that are closer to the next circle? Eli's hope is that they can jump from one planet to another, slowly getting closer and closer to the next circle of gates that will be in range of Destiny. The problem is, they won't know if they're going the right way. If they're heading in the wrong direction, they'll run out of gates, or they'll find a planet they've already been to. Rush and Brody have found something bad. So bad that Rush is considering not telling Young. After all, it's not certain. Brody thinks it's so bad they have to tell Young. The episode keeps us guessing what this is for now. After giving Young her report on James, TJ finally works up the courage to tell Young about her pregnancy. But of course, wouldn't you know it, at that moment a call comes on the radio for Young. Standard TV trope. But unlike in so many shows, she doesn't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. She says it can wait, it's more of a longer conversation. Which is true. TJ makes the right call here. But it's pretty clear that this is important and Young's not going to forget about it. So points to the show for that. This is when we learn what Rush has discovered. Destiny is nearing the edge of the current galaxy. That means they'll have a long voyage through the void between galaxies ahead of them. Now you think a galaxy is big, try imagining how big that void is. Honestly, I'm not sure I have an accurate picture of it. And clearly the gaps between galaxies aren't all the same. But it's probably bigger than anything I can imagine. Anyway, the problems are, there will be no stars ahead, which means no chance to recharge. There will be no planets to explore for supplies. And once they leave this galaxy, they'll be out of range of all those gates, with no way to reconnect with the lost away team. If they don't find their missing people the next time they drop out of FTL, they'll leave them behind in this galaxy forever. Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis were set in the Milky Way and Pegasus galaxies respectively. We've seen two other galaxies in the franchise, the galaxy where the Asgard live, and the galaxy where the Ori and the Alterans originated, that is, the native galaxy of the Ancients. This show is about to take us from one galaxy to another, and we don't even have a name for the galaxy we're currently in. This adds such a sense of distance and mystery to Stargate Universe. I've always been somewhat awed by that feeling. Eli's missing Kino has found an exit from the tunnels, which is good, and Chloe has found a map. This is the you are here that Eli was longing for. Good news for them. But there's also some bad news. Greer has been separated from them by a rockfall, and all indications suggest he's dead. Rush seems to have figured out the same idea as Eli, He's assuming they're making their way from planet to planet. Now that Destiny has stopped in another star system, he's heading through the gate in an attempt to meet the missing team members halfway. Except they're not coming yet because they're still in the tunnels. Scott is starting to think they might need to leave Greer. And this is when we get a flashback of Greer's childhood. 
He's hiding somewhere while his parents fight. The boy has to learn, his father's voice says. Seems he had a really rough childhood. And then he wakes up. But by now, he's all alone. At least Eli has found the Kino and a way to climb out. In another flashback, Child Greer is building something out of bricks, while his father drinks beer. When he's finished, his father pushes it over with his foot. His mother is defending him. He was a good man once. It's not his fault. I'm guessing he's suffered something in his life, and that has turned him into a drunk, and... Well, I can't think of a good word for it. Certainly not a clean one. His dad drives him out into the middle of a bad neighbourhood and tells him to get out of the car. Just dumps him there with no money. Greer walks home to find his house on fire. His parents are asleep in their bed. He drags his mum out of there. Apparently he gets his dad out too. When we next see him, he's in the hospital. This scene moves very quickly. There's a whole lot of information getting dumped on us. Someone else in Greer's dad's room is ranting about a war. A vaccine the military gave them that made them sick. A bunch of other stuff. I'm not sure if the guy is delusional or talking about things that really happened. I'm not sure how or if it affected Greer's dad. Scott has a new idea. If Young has figured out the planet-to-planet thing, it might be safer to wait on this planet until rescue arrives. Eli thinks they need to take the chance, because time is of the essence. They've dialed the gate, but Greer has freed himself from the tunnel. He's running to catch up with them. Will he make it before the gate closes behind them? The answer is no. They arrive on a foggy planet. Scott wants to wait 10 minutes on each to see if Destiny shows up when the gate list refreshes. But they can hear something huge and nasty approaching. It appears just as the gate opens. A giant freaky space monster, like a big dinosaur. I love it. For most of my life, sci-fi on TV didn't do these kind of creatures, because they were just too expensive on a TV budget. But times were starting to change around when Stargate Universe was being made. CGI was getting cheaper, and TV was slowly being given bigger budgets, being treated more like movies. Of course, today, premium TV shows are right up there on par with movies. But it was still a special thrill to see something like this on TV at the time. Rush is surprised that Destiny has skipped over so many planets with gates. And so am I. I'm sure there's some meaning behind everything it's programmed to do. Young finally catches up with TJ and she just blurts it out. I'm pregnant. Yes, it's a long conversation, but she's got to get it started. Young is shocked, as you'd expect. He has immediate concerns about a baby living on a ship, but he says they'll make it work. What else can he say? So here's the problem with only having one Kino. Eli sends it through to a planet which has a toxic atmosphere. They can't go through, which means they can't retrieve the Kino. Remember, physical matter can only go through a wormhole one way. At the SGC, it wouldn't matter so much. They can always get another MALP. Although, I assume they're not cheap to produce. But for Eli, Chloe and Scott, it means they can no longer scan any planet they dial. They have to step through the gate blind, not knowing where they'll end up. Let's just hope there aren't any space gates in this galaxy like there are in Pegasus.
It would seem unlikely. Greer is hallucinating his father is here with him by the campfire on that original planet. Back in a flashback, we learn his father has an infection in his brain. They do a great job of making Greer look younger. It's the same actor. Anyway, he tells his mother he's enlisted. She doesn't think this is a good idea, but he feels this is how he can do something important with his life. Make a difference. The planet the team is blindly travelling to is covered with snow. Scott goes there first, and then radios back to tell Eli and Chloe that it's safe. At least there's no dinosaurs. The Kino updates its gate list, and it's bad news. Eli recognises one of the addresses. It's the one where Young stranded Rush back in Justice. The one with the crashed alien ship. That means they've been heading in the wrong direction, and they've travelled a great distance in that direction. And that's really, really bad. Except Rush said that he was able to activate the computer on that ship. He found a map of the gate system. Now if they go to that planet, that might give them an idea of where to go. It's better than stumbling around blindly. The problem is, the blue aliens might come for them. Chloe warns you don't want to be kidnapped by them. Greer wakes up to hear the gate dialing. It's the rescue party. They've found the planet. But Greer's the only one there. At least they've rescued him. There's still another rescue team out there led by Rush. The other team have made it to the alien ship. They find Rush's glasses. I hadn't even noticed he'd lost them. Did he wear glasses? You can tell I'm an observant person, hey? Scott makes up an arbitrary number of minutes that they can stay on the ship. I think he's worried about the aliens showing up. Chloe recognises something in the alien text on screen. She can't read it, but on some level, she knows it's important. Eli can't read it either, but he obviously sees something he can use. And he's just figured out that Destiny is about to leave the galaxy, so he knows how urgent it all is now. Now they have a route to Destiny. The way they show this is clever. Eli starts dialing the gate, and then the gate on Destiny starts to dial. But out walks Rush and his team. Meanwhile, it cuts back to Eli's gate failing to dial. Well, that's just because the gate is engaged, like a phone. Scott has to tell him to dial again. But the seconds are counting down on Destiny. And it jumps. So once again, the gate fails halfway through the dial. Destiny is gone. It's left the galaxy. They missed it. By a few seconds. Eli, Chloe and Scott are now alone in the galaxy. As Eli says, that's it, we're done. Riley is still trying to document the trip to honour Eli. He's trying to interview Greer, but he realises that this isn't the time. And that's where the episode ends. This was a massive shock at the time. In the 90s, most TV shows would not have left the team stranded on that planet to begin with, unless it was a two-parter. But that wasn't so unusual at the time SGU came out. But there was something of an expectation that they would make it back to Destiny by the end of the following episode. But to have them come so far, and then still fail. That isn't a massive shock today, but in 2010 it was still a big deal. And I love they had the guts to do it. In all honesty, I don't remember how they resolved this. But it's looking really, really bad for our three-stranded crew. 
This was a great episode. It had lots of thrills and tension. The planet hopping was a lot of fun, and that ending was real edge of your seat stuff. And the unexpected failure, that hit pretty hard. It was great to delve into Greer's backstory a little, to see where he came from. It helps us empathise with him as a character a lot more. But I found it all very jumbled. It was all quick flashes. They covered years of Greer's life in a handful of quick scenes. I don't think they made it exactly clear what it was all about. What was his father's deal? I still don't really know. I think they could have done a better job of this, honestly. I think they had some good character development to do here, but they didn't quite achieve it. There was a lot to pack into this episode. But this was the days of network television. You remember when we used to watch broadcast shows on a TV station at a certain time when the program was scheduled? Episodes were kept to a pretty strict 40 minutes. These days, in the age of streaming, the run times of shows are a lot more fluid. If they need 50 minutes or an hour to do the story justice, that's exactly what they'll do. I think this episode would have benefited from that kind of mindset. In any case, the season is really building towards its finale. Things are getting very exciting, and I'm loving every minute of it. We're in the last leg of our journey through season one. Five episodes left. Next week, we'll look at the episode Sabotage. Without looking at the synopsis, I don't remember what that one's about. So, I'll leave it as a bit of a surprise for myself. If you're interested in checking out some of my original science fiction, you can go to adamdavidcollings.com books, where you'll find everything I've written in one convenient list. Until next time, have a great two weeks, live long and prosper. Make it so.